aren't many things that compare so greatly than the church singing these hymns of the faith together. What a privilege that is to hear this morning. Well, if you would, take a copy of the confession if you have one this morning. If you do not, there should be some extra copies out in the entryway there. Uh, we're going to be looking at paragraph 2 and chapter 21 of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience, and we're dealing with that second aspect of that title of the chapter, the Liberty of Conscience. So paragraph 2, we'll begin by reading that paragraph, and then we'll be looking at a number of different passages this morning, uh, not so much expounding just one, but we'll look at, be looking at a number of different passages that uh, certainly show us that this uh, particular teaching uh, is scriptural and certainly lines up uh, with what the Bible says. Paragraph 2, chapter 21 of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Liberty of conscience. So we're going to look at this paragraph really just in two phases this morning. And we're going to look at that at first of all in an overview and then an exposition of this paragraph. And then secondly, uh, we'll look at an explanation and an application. And so what we have here, uh, again, going along with the subject of Christian liberty, and we've spent a number of weeks learning what true Christian liberty is, uh, there are three really main ideas that come out of this paragraph, and then we're going to build around each one of those as far as an overview. The first of heading of the overview and exposition would simply be that God alone is Lord of the conscience. Okay, now that's the obvious one there because that's the very first expression of the paragraph. God alone is Lord of of the conscience. Secondly, God has not left the conscience free to force upon others. And thirdly, and this could probably even be the first, is God is the lawgiver. So we're going to look at this paragraph through those three lenses. God alone is Lord of the conscience. God has not left the conscience free to force upon others. God is the lawgiver. So what does this mean that God alone is Lord of the conscience? Well, let's look at a couple passages. First of all, let's turn to James chapter 4, verse 12. Now, a lot of these this morning are going to be what we would call uh, proof text. Uh, we're using, uh, obviously, the, the, the confession as a guide, and we're looking at passages that speak about these particular subjects. Now, uh, we're so used to going through a whole passage and going through and expounding, and I think there's, that's great, but there are times... Uh, when we are dealing with a topic such as the liberty of conscience, uh, that we look at, we're looking at the Bible for, of course, not only our support, but for the authority. So James 4.12 says, now you'll see this one goes right along with also the third one, God is the lawgiver. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judges another? So we see a principle being established. God is the lawgiver. 
And because he is the lawgiver, he alone is what would also be referred to as the Lord of the conscience. So we're going to develop that idea this morning about what the conscience is and how it could be uh, lorded over. Um, how it can be, even scripturally, we can use the Bible and outside of scriptural means to force upon someone else uh, what they ought to believe and what they ought to think. Uh, Romans 14.4, along that same line says, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. So we see this principle that it is God alone who dictates to us what we ought or ought not to do or to believe. It's God. To be the Lord of the conscience means he alone dictates to us what we ought or ought not to believe. What do we do? What are we supposed to do? What shouldn't we do? It is God alone who dictates that. Now, certainly, someone would come right out and say right away, see, no man should judge another man. That's not the concept here. And we're going to develop that a little bit further. It's not that we're not to judge things, but there is a very, a, a very distinct difference between lording over someone's conscience. It, it's, it's other than judging something or judging someone by what the Word of God says. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say don't judge each other. Ultimately, what is happening here is ultimately who is the one who dictates those things to us? Why do we believe what we believe? So God is alone the Lord of the conscience. Now, that doesn't mean, and even as the confession says, it doesn't mean that he leaves the consciences of men free from anything. Notice what the paragraph says. He says he's the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines, and here's the key, and commandments of men. So the conscience is free from man-made doctrines and commandments of men. In other words, there is no authority that is over my conscience if it is a man-made doctrine or a commandment of men. Or, he says, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So this free conscience doesn't mean that we're just free to do whatever we want to do. It simply is teaching us that we are free. The conscience of man is free from the doctrines or commandments of men or that which is contrary to his word or simply not contained in it. And a couple of the proof texts that are mentioned in the footnotes there, uh, Matthew 15, 9 is the first one we'll look at. Again, these will probably be familiar passages, and they, they relate to this principle of the Lord of the conscience. Uh, Matthew 15, uh, verse number 8 and 9 we'll look at. It says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me. Now notice the key here, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, they will take something and what they're teaching, they will claim this is a doctrine of God or this is what the Lord has said, but he hasn't. 
Uh, this is in relation to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, had an entire made-up uh, level of commandments and uh, dictations to the conscience of this is what you must do or this is what you cannot do. So that's what's being portrayed here. Uh, in the book of Acts, chapter number 4, verse 19. And I'm going to move a little quick, quickly through these, so if you don't get turned to them, maybe just write them down. Acts 4, 19 as Peter and John were standing after they'd been arrested, they're giving an account of their activities. And it says, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And again, they were enforcing upon them that which was contrary to the word of God. And we're going to talk about that also in just a little while. Uh, you're in Acts 4, turn over to Acts 5 and verse 29. These are all footnoted under the paragraph in your confession, so you can see uh, most of these. Again, Peter. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Or we must obey God rather than men. And then 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, verse 23. First Corinthians 7, verse 23. Not often do we think about it from this perspective, but this is certainly uh, within the context. Ye are bought with a price. Be not, be not ye the servants of men. So we can see here that very distinctly he's drawing a line between what is a commandment or a doctrine of man and what is a commandment or a doctrine of God. And really what we are being free from are those things which are contrary to the word of God or contrary to the commandments of God. So that gives us the concept here of the Lord of the conscience. That second heading, he's not left the conscience free to force upon others. Uh, he has left it free in the sense that when it comes to the doctrines or comments or commandments of men which are against his word, uh, we are not required to obey those doctrines or those commandments. Now, this goes as far as when a church itself or a person within a church or a person within some uh, realm of religious authority pushes upon someone else to obey and follow a man-made commandment or doctrine. Okay, that, that is, the conscience is not free so that you can force man-made commands or doctrines upon someone else. Now again, we could give many examples throughout the ages, throughout the generations of when churches have made up man-made doctrines and man-made commandments that were not related to the authority or the word of God. They were things where man says, look, this is what we're going to do and we're going to claim that this is biblical authority. Uh, pastors and elders have been guilty upon doing this, but it's also happened within the congregation. People will get an idea that this is, this is the word of God and you must obey this command or you must abstain from this only to find out that's not what God's word says. That's what man says. So the conscience is, yes, we're free from this, but we're not free to also take it and push it upon someone else. Uh, you'll notice how they phrase this. It says that anything contrary to his word or not contained in it, so that to believe such doctrines, that's with relation to the man-made commandments and doctrines, or to obey commands out of conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience. 
So if you obey those commandments of men and treat them as doctrine, you're betraying true liberty. You're, you're actually binding yourself. You're putting yourself back into change. You're putting yourself back into bondage because you are treating those as authoritatively given by the great lawgiver who the only lawgiver is God. So it requires, oftentimes, and the Pharisees did this, they required an absolute and blind obedience to their commandments and their doctrines. They demanded it. And they said it's absolutely, blindly obey. Again, sadly, this has happened in churches throughout history where a pastor has said, it's not your responsibility to question me, you're just supposed to be loyal to me. And that's not biblical. I'm going to call out a name, and I'm going to call it out because it's important. There was a man who started a church in Hammond, Indiana years ago named Jack Hiles that said exactly that. He said, you owe me your loyalty. No, it's not absolute blind obedience. That mentality has permeated many Baptist churches for a long time. Its roots run very, very deeply to where people have grown up believing that, look, if the pastor says it, that doesn't matter. If he says it, then I absolutely have to follow it. This pastor's not telling you that. That, that Jack Hiles mentality, again, I'm not trying to string up Baptists, but I'm just telling you, that's the example, the greatest example I know. And there are legions of churches that are founded upon the principles of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. And many of that is exactly what I'm talking about here. There are some very troubling clips on YouTube. You can go about, it, it's, it was almost cultic. People swearing allegiance to Jack Hiles. That's a clear violation of what's being taught here. They were blind authority, blind obedience, just do it because I said so. He was allowed to say, I don't owe you an explanation for anything. And people just followed like there was no problem. There's great problems with that. That's the pharisaical idea. That's the way of thinking about those things. So there is no absolute and blind obedience because that which is to be believed has been clearly spelled out in the word. What we are told to believe and not to believe is dictated by God himself, not by religious leaders. So as we've established already, it is God who is the great lawgiver. Isaiah 33 Verse 22 gives us this principle. Now, this is not one of the footnoted uh, verses, but it certainly goes right along with declaring uh, who God is and why he alone has the, not only the ability, but the authority. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. He is the one who makes laws. He is the one who identifies himself as Jehovah God, all-powerful, all-authority. He is the only one who has the authority to dictate to your conscience what to believe and what not to believe. He is perfectly moral. He is sinless. 
That means God is never going to make an error in judgment. He's never going to make an error in demanding from you that which is improper. Men will always do that. If I started to make demands upon you, I would be doing that through sinful eyes, often to the raising up of my own kingdom. Sadly, in a lot of churches, that's what's happened. It's become about kingdom building. That's not what coming to church and being a part of the local church is about. It's not about building a man's kingdom or a pastor's or elder's kingdom or even a congregational kingdom. It's about proclaiming the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is the one with the only authority to do this. So as a result of that, he's the one who gives the you shall and or you shall not. He alone has authority over our conscience. He can tell us what to obey and what not to obey. He can tell us how we should conduct ourselves and what we should believe. Now, I know it's contrary to the way we think, but even we don't have a right to demand on any other person what they should believe. You're not the Lord of the conscience of anyone else. Now, your information scripturally may be dead on right. And if you're, if you're teaching scripture, you are right. But do you know you don't have the authority to dictate to that man or woman's conscience? When you tell them you must believe this, now what is true about that comment? You must believe it in order to be saved. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins. But I can't demand that that person obey and follow. All I can do is proclaim he who has said this is the only means of salvation. Or this is what God's word says. So he can demand obedience from us. He has a right to do that. Now, again, we always have to keep in mind what was going on in the day and age in which the confession was being penned and how it was being modified from other confessions of faith. This paragraph, there's no question at all that it was written without a doubt with the Roman Catholic Church in mind. Okay, that's what was in mind because there was no other greater oppression to the conscience than the Catholic Church. Now, let me just say something. Often in some of the older readings, and especially if you read older commentators and older pastors, they use the word Catholic. Now, that word does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. It means universal. It means as a whole. So sometimes I've had people who've texted me and said, did you know this guy was Catholic? And I said, oh, no, 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 that's not what that means. That was a word that was to encompass a universal teaching or this is a group of people, a body of believers. It's, it's commonly accepted. It, it kind of tells you and shows you a little bit how even the Roman Catholic Church kind of hijacked that title. It's, it was often only known as the Church of Rome. The Roman Catholic part kind of added, was added into it. But they, no doubt they are guilty of this particular principle of trying to dictate to the conscience what you ought to believe. Now, if you were to tell those Jack Hiles followers, you know, what you're doing is actually a lot like Catholicism, they would call you a heretic and probably slam the door on your face. But that's what it is. You're, you're asking for blind obedience to something that you cannot back up as being scriptural. Now again, Jack Hiles and that church is not the only church that's guilty of this. But the Catholic church at that time intentionally 
If you read some of their documents, they have wording to suggest that it is their right to bind the conscience of its members. They don't even hide it. And members follow along with that saying, well, if if this is coming down from the Pope or this is coming down from our religious leaders, then it must be so. It's just how everything works. And if they come down and and the Pope says uh, gay marriage must be accepted. That's why you'll see many Catholics will say, "Okay, the Pope said it, so I have to believe it, even though it's contrary to God's laws. That's an example of the conscience being bound or the conscience being forced upon. That's an obvious one, but that's exactly what's happening here. So what kind of things does the Catholic Church bind the conscience? And again, this is still happening, so I am not speaking in slander today. I am speaking to the truth of what the church, the Catholic Church still teaches today and still holds to be true. Uh, they hold to a host of unbiblical doctrines, especially concerning Mary. All you have to do is look at their books about what they believe about Mary. Mary and Jesus are basically on the same level. Purgatory. That's completely made up. There's no, there's no scripture that even suggests the purgatory. Yet talk to Catholics about purgatory and they are scared. They are scared of that, even though it won't force them to the confession booth. Purgatory kind of scares them, but they know that there's hope because all their loved ones can do is just pray hard and get them out of purgatory. The Catholic Mass, we won't get into all the details, but that's not just a service they hold on Saturday night. Study what the Mass is really all about, and it's pretty appalling. We don't have the time today to get into all of that, but there's binding of the conscience throughout every one of those services. So those doctrines are based upon the commandments and traditions and doctrines of men. They have no basis in Scripture. So when someone says, is the Catholic Church a true church, the answer to that question is no, it is not. Because it's not based upon the Scripture, the Holy Scriptures. It's not based upon the great lawgiver, God. Again, some of us probably have Catholic friends, and we're probably afraid to say, you know, the Catholic Church is not the true church. But if you know your Bible, the Catholic Church is not the true church. It springs forth from either a misinterpretation of Scripture or plainly from the Catholic books. If you go to a Catholic service, and if you've ever been to one, it's a frightening experience. If you've been to a Catholic wedding, it's frightening. If you've been to a Catholic funeral, it's even more frightening. The, most, the, the scariest thing I've ever been to is a Catholic funeral. There is zero, and I mean zero hope in it, for anybody. Not just the departed, but even the people sitting there. There's no hope, there's nothing. All a bunch of traditions, all a bunch of man-made things. Incense being brought in and shaken around the place. And you think that's, oh, that's, no, they believe in something's happening with that. It's all added. It's something that's not there. And yet people, sadly, in the church, in the Catholic church, take that as something that is true. Uh, You can search all that you want, but uh, even the idea of praying to a dead person who's in purgatory. You're addressing anyone else other than God. You'll find no basis in Scripture to pray to anybody but God. So when they pray to Mary, that's their conscience being binded by something that's not true. I have never once in my life prayed to Mary, nor will I ever pray to Mary. 
<laughs> a biblically sound church will never even show it. Hey, you got to pray to Mary today. Yet, at any faithful, again, using that term not even loosely, at a distance, the faithful Roman Catholic regularly prays to Mary. They also pray to other saints. You didn't hear me today invoke the Apostle Peter in our prayer, did you? You didn't hear me invoke the Apostle Paul. You didn't hear me invoke Mary. We prayed to the triune God. We prayed to the Father in the name of the Son and through the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. No mention was ever made of anybody other than the triune God. We didn't pray for the dead this morning. I didn't pray for your dead loved one today. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh. Because I know what the Bible says about those who've absent, absent from the body, right? So this doctrines, especially of, specifically of purgatory, has no basis in Scripture. Yet purgatory has troubled the consciences of men for thousands of years. Purgatory troubles the consciences of men and their consciences being bound by something that's not even biblical, scriptural, or even God-given. That's an example of the conscience being bound. And that's one of the responses of why paragraph 2 of chapter 21 is written in there. They knew that this was a problem. Now, has the Catholic Church changed much since then? No, it really hasn't. They've just added more things to bind your conscience with. It's a much bigger concept now. What about the doctrine that claims the Pope's the head of the church? Does that have any basis in Scripture? Absolutely not. So if, if I'm telling you that and you follow that, you're following a commandment and a doctrine of man, your conscience is bound. So people that believe that, they're being dictated to, you have to believe this. The Pope is not the head of the church. He never has been the head of the church. He's not even in Christ Jesus. The Pope is not a saved man. Anybody that calls themselves a vicar says, I'm the representative on earth of Jesus Christ is a heretic. Again, you have Catholic friends. This is, this is hard for them to hear, but you have to speak truth to people. This idea that we're all in this together and all these churches are the same. They're not the same. A local, even a universal, the universal church will not bind the consciences of men and women with that which God's word is not commanded. This church is not going to attempt to bind your conscience about that which is not bound in Scripture or found in Scripture. Will we proclaim with authority what the Bible says? Absolutely. Will I ever tell you to blindly follow me or any other elder or whatever? No. Even as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. If I cease to follow Christ, stop following me. And any man who knows the word of God is not ashamed to say that because he knows that's what the biblical responsibility and the mandate is. As I follow Christ, you can follow. But not blind obedience. So all these doctrines have no divine warrant in Scripture. They're extra-biblical. Some are even anti-biblical. I've given you four examples in the Catholic Church alone. It's not even extra-biblical, it's anti-biblical. Not only do they come from somewhere outside of the Bible, but they contradict things, right? So even those Catholic teachings I just gave you, every one of those contradict what the Bible says. And yet, millions of people are bound by this. 
Now, I know this is kind of just kind of faded into the background, but I've said this since we started the confessions. I, I was looking over the records. <clears throat> you know, we started studying the confession almost seven years ago in some form or fashion. And in all of those years that we've kind of come to it and, and then put it aside and come back to it, you think about all these things that have happened. <clears throat> and in those seven years, one thing has always been true. And I've said, I said it way back at the very beginning. One of the most dangerous, quote unquote, what calls himself a church in the world today is still the Catholic Church. And I know we've got these violent religions. We have these violent things that we say, no, that's the greatest threat to Christianity. You're missing, really, what still has always been one of the greatest persecutors of the true church has been the Roman Catholic Church throughout history. That's fact. Now, have other religions taken aim? Absolutely. But folks, we are not on the same plane the biblical church and the Roman Catholic church are not on the same plane at all. And yet the most confused people I've ever talked to are not people that have come out of the religions that are in the forefront. It's people who've come out of Catholicism. The, the brainwashing is so deep and it is really, really hard to deprogram. Even when they see scripture, they say, but what about and it runs deep. The hardest counseling I've ever done is people who used to be Catholics. By far, it's not even close. So to require people to believe things that are not biblical is binding the conscience or lording over someone's conscience. So it may not be the Catholic Church, but if I lord over you and require you to believe something that is not according to Scripture, I am binding your conscience. And if you're doing that to somebody else, you're binding their conscience. It is God alone who is the Lord of the conscience. Some of you may be familiar. He's a man by the name of Robert Shaw. He writes various articles for various Christian publications in, in the Reformed um, Baptist uh, publications. He says, no person on earth can have authority to dictate to conscience. For this would be to assume a prerogative which belongs to none but the supreme Lord and legislator. Spot on right. Again, we looked at how in Jesus' in own words, Matthew 15, about the Pharisees, people draw nigh with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So they teach commandments as if they were the commandments of God. Now, the Pharisees were guilty of a number of different things. Again, we're, this, this is not the time to cover everything that they did, but we would be in agreement. They required ritual washing, ceremonial cleansings. Uh, they made up their own rules regarding the Sabbath and what could and couldn't be done. Uh, Matthew Henry commenting on this said, this is an instance regarding the Pharisees of their hypocrisy, that they teach for doctrines the commandments of men. The Jews then, as the Papist or the Catholics, sense paid the same respect to oral tradition that they did to the Word of God, receiving with the same pious affection and reverence. When men's inventions are tacked to God's institutions and imposed accordingly, this is hypocrisy, a mere human religion. The commandments of men are properly conversant about the things of men, but God will have his own work done by his own rules and accepts not that which he did not himself appoint. That only comes to him that comes from him, rather. That only comes from him. He's the one who can appoint those things. So that gives us a really good understanding of this. 
So quickly, an explanation and application. This is a very quick review. So what is it to be set free from this thing? We are free to serve God in the newness of life. Okay, the Bible teaches that we should be careful not to be brought back into the binding of man by their traditions or by their rules. Uh, Galatians 5.1, a familiar verse to us, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now again, believers need not believe anything that's not found in the scriptures. Okay, the Bible has the answer to every issue of life. There's an answer for it. But anything that's extra biblical with regard to the things and commandments of God, no, you don't. Believers are not to be judged in matters that the Bible allows freedom from. One of the classic passages is Colossians chapter 2. And Paul was dealing with the church at Colossae who was dealing with this very issue where there was this temptation to continue to bind people and require certain things of them based upon the traditions of man. Colossians 2, verse 20. The Bible tells us here, he says, let's, let's go back to verse number 18. He says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in honor to the satisfying of the flesh. There are those things that cannot be imposed upon other people. Number three, believers are not to follow church leaders blindly. I've seen it, and it's sickening. You don't, again, here I am, you don't want to do this, right? But you do not want to see a church that just blindly follows and doesn't test what's, what they're being taught. That man or men are still fallible. They are subject to like passions as you are. They're subject to bouts of power, bouts of pride, bouts of just selfishness. People act so alarmed when that happens to a pastor or an elder. Well, why is it so surprising it happens to people all the time who are non-pastors and elders. We have moments where we get overtaken with a desire for things and a desire for power. That's why you can't just blindly say, well, he said it, so we've got to do it. I think I mentioned this on Wednesday night. It, it sounds endearing, but someone was talking, this has been years ago, was having a conversation with someone else, and they said, they simply answered the question, well, I believe that because my pastor said that. No, that's not why you believe it. You believe it because you've tested it. And that's what the Bible says. 
You stand on what God's Word says. You be like those in the book of Acts in Acts 17.11, which is not just a, uh, it's not just a, a suggestion as to, hey, this is what we ought to be and, and to be used as a means of a sermon to emotionally um, get people involved. Look, what, look what's written here, Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. Okay, so this morning, you should have come today ready of mind to receive. Right? And searched the scriptures daily. For what? Whether those things were so. No preacher who's preaching the Word of God is going to tell you, you don't need to check for yourself, just trust me, it's there. He's going to tell you, search the Scriptures daily, make sure what I'm telling you is scriptural. If a man tells you, just trust me, don't. If I tell you, just trust me, if when God answers a prayer through plurality of elders at this church and there's more than just one and three men stand up here and say, just trust us blindly, don't. Test it. Be sure what you're being taught is biblical and scriptural. That's the concept. Like I said, I called out a name today, but that's wrong. You don't just follow a man because he says to do it. Church leaders should never expect believers to simply follow them with an absolute faith. What that means or to have an implicit faith means to follow a person's word as if it's the word of God. That's what the Hiles crowd was doing and sadly is still doing. The levels of Baptist camps, if this, is, if this is foreign to you, and it might be, we take for granted a lot of what us preachers and pastors hear about, and sometimes I make assumptions that you know all about this. When, I, when you hear me use terms like Baptist camps, what I'm talking about is I'm not talking about the place you go and set a tent up. I'm talking about these lines of beliefs and why that when your name gets associated with one of those camps, why you don't want to be associated with that camp? Because it has something about it that's saying this is, this is more about following with absolute implicit faith, not following the scriptures. So then what do we do lastly about, and this was, this was very prevalent over the last few years. And again, I think it was misused. And again, this is not meant to stir a controversy today. That's, this is not my intent. But what does the Bible say about even the government, right? Do we have absolute responsibility to follow every single thing that the government said as far as the land, the laws of the land? Not when it's contrary to the word of God. Now, again, there were people that misused that during COVID who simply said and basically blasted their leaders for remaining closed or opening or whatever. It... it, it what happened through that was one of the saddest things in church history because it shouldn't have been that way. There should not have been a division upon whether we're open or we're closed. Every church had to make its own decision. It wasn't because they were bowing down to the authority and saying, oh, you're serving, you're serving man more than God. If that, was your imp if that was your impression, you probably got it wrong. It wasn't about that. 
You know, there are, there are people now that are being made heroes about that. And again, I, I'm not trying to be ugly today, but there are pastors now that are being elevated for how they handled the COVID crisis and they, did, they stayed open. And if, if you stayed open, you were the true church. If you closed for a single minute, you were not the true church. This church closed for a little while. That doesn't mean we weren't the true church and it doesn't mean that we were bowing. You know what we had to decide? We had to decide from a health perspective what we knew at the time. Boy, how easy it is to look back now and say, why did you do what you did? Because we didn't know. So we took a line and we said, what we're going to do. It wasn't because we're, we're holding the authority of the government above God. God is the final authority. And I've, I've said it for, sure, for certain. If we were told you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ any longer, do you know what this church would still keep doing? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the church says to me someday, and some of you know why I was so resistant to getting a minister's license in the state of Ohio to marry people, it's because if they come and they say, you must marry same-sex couples, you know what I'm going to tell them? No, I will not. I will not do it. That would be holding the government above what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that's an abomination. I can't do that. I won't do that. And that's one of those examples where they were telling Peter and John and telling them, do not preach in the name of Christ any longer. What did they do? They went right out and preached Christ again. Just for the record, I've said it. It may not happen in our generation. It may be our grandkids. Maybe it will be our generation. I think there will be, without hesitation, there will be a government mandate that will come down in this country that you are no longer going to preach Christ now, let me, just, let me just kind of ask you to consider something. The difference between that and what COVID did, they're not even on the same level. Now, if a church closes, it does, we're not preaching Christ anymore because the government said so, then they don't even understand the structure of authority. Christ and his word and the word of God has authority. But so when the government instructs believers to do things that are specifically forbidden by God, or forbid them from doing things commanded by God, they should, and here's the key, and this is where us Baptists especially have gotten this wrong, respectfully disobey the government. This idea of holding yourself up with, with loaded artillery, I'm going to take them down if they come on my property. Stand on the authority of the word of God. Just stand there, right? I don't know what's going to happen, but there is still a level of respect. There's still a level of whether we want to believe it or not. We are told to pray for those in authority over us. That even means if, again, oh, if you're a Republican, yeah, you got to pray for a Democrat. Oh, I don't agree with his, I don't agree with his policies. Doesn't matter. The Bible says pray for those in authority over you. That's at any level. Where is the level of disrespect? Now, again, that doesn't mean that we, as Peter said in, in Acts 4.19, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God, to hearken unto you more than God, unto God judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. To understand what that passage means makes it so clear what our response should be to these things. So let's summarize it quickly by saying, when men, when any denomination... Any institution 
any church, any religion, any government requires us or requires you to believe and accept something as true which you cannot find in the Bible or is contrary to the Bible, we should reject that. So that this Christian liberty that we have that's been granted to us through whom? It's been granted to us through Christ. Our Christian liberty actually is destroyed when we follow that which is not ordained by God. Now again, if this is the first time you've been, you know, maybe you haven't been following, go back and listen to all the messages leading up to this about what true Christian liberty is, because that's a summary statement that doesn't stand alone. It's a, it's a summary of everything we've talked about up to this point. So the liberty of conscience, it is number one, it is God alone who's the Lord of the conscience. Number two, God has not left the conscience free to force it upon others. And thirdly, God is the lawgiver. So I hope that'll be a help to us. Next week, uh, we'll cover paragraph three and uh, dealing a little bit along the same lines, but quite a bit different as well. So if you want to read ahead, uh, paragraph three, chapter 21 in the confession for next week. Amen.